0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi and welcome to a new episode of Be Good brought to you by the BVNudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVN Nudge Unit, and with me is my colleague Suzanne Kirkendall from BVN Nudge Unit US.
2: Hi Eric, it's great to be joining you, and I'm truly honored to be introducing our guest today. So today we will be speaking with Caroline Webb. Caroline began her career as a research fellow at the Levy Economics Institute and working on public policy at the Bank of England. In 2000, Caroline joined McKinsey & Company, where she was made a partner in 2008. Her work centered on organizational change and leadership development, including executive coaching. In 2012, Caroline founded 7Shift, a coaching and consulting firm specializing in increasing workplace performance and well-being through the application of insights from behavioral science. She remains an external senior advisor to McKinsey. Caroline is also the author of the best-selling book, How to Have a Good Day, Harness the Power of Behavioral Science to Transform Your Working Life, which has been published in over 60 countries and in 14 languages.
1: Congrats, Caroline. I am uh, very happy to get in touch with you again after we first met in person some years ago in Paris, when you launched the French version of your book, How to Have a Good Day. Uh, This book is uh, really amazing. Uh, the reading has been very inspirational for me. And when I decided to write my third book, Nudge Management, it was one of the most useful resources, I have to say, along with book uh, from uh, Dan Ariely, Adam Grant, Amy Edmondson, Laszlo Bock, and I would say the big guys, but yours was really uh, fantastic. Uh, so I am more than happy and honored to have the opportunity to have another in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Caroline.
0: Thank you, and it's wonderful to be here.
2: Fantastic. So Caroline, could we start by coming back to your background and your early career? So could you tell us more about how and when you discovered the field of behavioral science? (laughs)
0: Well, uh, of course, you know, behavioral science is a a living, growing, emerging, moving field. So I'm sure all of us can pick a number of different dates. I mean, I think, you know, a a perfectly defensible place to start would be 1987. When I took my first economics class, I was studying um, economics for the first time. And I was really lucky. I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time to have an economics teacher that took a really uh, broad approach to the discipline and thought about economics as a way of organizing and challenging the way that we thought about human potential and performance and so the human being was very much in the center of this and then how that would roll up to how a system would behave uh, at you know a more aggregate level and it got me completely hooked I'd planned to be an astrophysicist before I took this class so um, so that was a massive uh, redirect to thinking about um, human behavior and I then I worked as an economist for quite a long time and realized that mainstream economics actually didn't have that much of the uh the behavioral spice, that sort of understanding of the human being at the heart of what what we were supposed to be looking at, and I found myself grabbing onto anything that had a kind of human pulse, you know, whether it was. Uh, aspects of game theory that had some sense that you might make a mistake, like trembling hand equilibrium or um, aspects of welfare economics that showed that your preferences might not be, uh, you know, logical from a sort of purely um, transitive perspective, to use the sort of the technical word. And then, you know, reading pieces by uh, economists like Janet Yellen, who, of course, you know, we all know, uh, but she was doing work on labour economics and she was talking about things like motivation, and I remember it being so unusual in the field of economics back then that I would sort of underline and triple underline these signs, these glimmers of recognition of the human being. So, you know, I think that I actually had a, a few years where I felt pretty frustrated, actually, by by what was happening in mainstream economics. And then went to con- into consulting because I thought that was a way to get back to Thinking about human behavior, so and then use behavioral science very much as the foundation for my practice uh, as a consultant and as a coach. So you know, I could pick just about any date along that <laughs> along that spectrum, but 1987 is probably the best one. Yeah, it's a journey, not a destination, right?
2: There you go. go. Um,
0: go. Great. So it sounds like you've had a few
2: influential factors there. You've got your economics professor, Janet Yellen, you mentioned. Are there any other researchers or mentors that have had a really strong influence on you throughout this behavioral science journey?
0: Uh, Well, yes, my gosh. I mean, so, so many Um, and many of them you're interviewing for this wonderful podcast, so I could, I could name any one of your guests actually i mean i think certainly i would mention the power couple of uh danny kahneman and and his uh, his wife his late wife anne treisman um, you know i i think many people know kahneman's work on the two system brain and the the the, the implications for decision making and judgment but you know for me I found so much richness in the other aspects of his work, for example, on hedonic psychology. And if I think about what actually guides my day, the things that I do and how I live my life, then the work that he's done on the difference between experiencing and remembering happiness um, has been enormously influential. I always make sure to end the day by doing a gratitude exercise that looks back on the good things of the day, to do it at the end of the day, given the peak end rule. (laughs) So, you know, this is something that's very present in my life. And then the work that that Anne Treisman did on selective attention is probably the, you know, the big common theme that runs through a lot of my work, which is the idea that we don't experience an objective reality, that we're constantly filtering out a great deal of it and trying to understand the rules around that so that we can experience the world both as it is as far as possible, but also as we want it to be. That, that is so much a theme in, in much of the work that I do.
1: Caroline, could you tell us more about why one day you decided to write the book, How to Have a Good Day?
0: Well, you know, there are other people I might have mentioned as, as heroes and sources of inspiration. Um, people like, uh, you know, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who, you know, showed that it was possible to actually drive really good policy choices as a result of, um, uh, as a result of the, the the great research that was going on in laboratories around the world. Um, I think the work that Dan Ariely did in writing *Predictably Irrational*, the work that John Haidt did in writing *The Happiness Hypothesis*, all of these books helped me see that there was a there was a real opportunity to take amazing decades of research that weren't yet really properly making the leap into actual application um, in the way that people chose to live their lives. And you know that might have stayed as a sort of oh, aren't those books great? Uh, I'm glad that they exist, except that in my client work, which I was doing with leaders uh, and managers at many different organizations, they would sometimes ask me at the end of a workshop. So, you know, have you got a book that you could recommend? And I would mention the books that I've just uh, I've just said were so influential for me. And uh, they would say, well, a couple of them said to me, no, no, I've read those. I, what about something that puts things in the context of the workplace, like the stuff that we've been talking about, how you might organize your day, your your work, how you might think about a meeting differently as a result of behavioral science um, uh, insights. And so then I thought, OK, well, maybe there's actually a need. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very hard to give so many uh, years to, to a project without feeling that there might actually be someone who wants to read it. And so, you know, those clients were very, they, they were they were very generous to make me feel like there was a market for it. <laughs>
1: uh, Caroline, how would you define a good day at work?
0: Well, that's a fair question, given that I've written so much about having a good day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I used to, in my organizational change work with with organizations around the world in the public, private, social sectors. I always used to start my diagnostic process with them by doing a series of interviews where I'd ask people, what is a good day for you? Uh, what is a bad day and how could you get more good days? And, um, Sometimes my colleagues were a bit freaked out by the lack of a more detailed interview guide, but I've, I tended to find that that was really all you needed. And the answers that came out were surprisingly consistent across cultures um, and, and countries. It was really about the question of, you know, are you spending time on what you think matters most? Um, and of course, there are lots of things that can get away in, in the way of that, but are you, do you feel good about where you're spending time? Do you feel about the good, good about the quality of what you're doing? whether it's the quality of your thinking, the quality of your interactions, the quality of the impact that you have? And do you have the energy to keep doing it uh, even through ups and downs? And really, it's those three questions that, uh, that people would always talk about in whatever context. And so that's what, uh, that's what I decided to build the book around.
1: To be highly productive, I think, is something which is a key objective at work. And you mentioned there are a lot of traps from multitasking to distraction, decision fatigue, procrastination. How could we avoid all of these traps and be productive at work?
0: Well... You know, there are any number of, well, going back to what I was just saying, the first the first big area of of satisfaction that people feel about a good day is usually that feeling that they've spent time on things that really matter. Um, all of the things you mentioned, you know, can absolutely get in the way, but they're all, although they sound like different phenomena, they're all about failing to work with the way that our brains work, they're failing to work with the deliberate system in our brain, the system to they They're failing to recognise the shortcomings, the limitations of this gloriously complex uh, piece of software that we have in our in our heads. And um, so that's really what I try to get people to do is to understand a little bit what what are the shortcomings. So uh, and to work with that. So we know that the deliberate system finds it uh it's it's not a it's not a system that can do two things at once that require conscious attention if it if the tasks do not require conscious attention then you're okay they can run in parallel but if um if if two tasks require conscious attention there's a single attentional bottleneck in the brain and uh you encounter switching costs and so you know that because you know this literature but a lot of A lot of executives get to the end of the day and wonder why they're so frazzled and why they're never feeling like they're getting on top of their workload. And then to talk to them about the fact that they are, you know, probably taking 30 percent longer because they're multitasking the whole time. And to talk to them about the fact that there might be a prize of getting 30 percent of their time back. I mean, of course, it's never quite so neat and clean, but just the prize of getting any time back is is a really, you know, a precious, precious thing. What's another uh, restriction that um, our deliberate system faces? Well, um, we know that it gets tired very easily um, and quickly and that after a certain point, although there's been some back and forth in the research on this, there is a deterioration decision quality. Um, so, you know, if you talk to people about the fact that they should take more breaks, they roll their eyes at you and they say, well, that sounds very soft and nice to have. If you say... You know that time that you go for a walk and then you come back and you look at the piece of work you were wrestling with and you suddenly see the answer? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I say to them, well, that's not random. That There's a reason why that happens. Um, so getting them to think about uh, downtime for the brain being as important to performance as uptime. Um, is often a huge, uh, huge area of productivity gains. It's sort of counterintuitive because it means that they're sort of they think they're working less, but they're not. They're just using, using their time differently. Um, and I think, you know, generally whatever you can do to make a task seem easier is going to obviously help with getting it done. And that we, we struggle with abstraction. We struggle with uh, conceiving of a future benefit that feels like it's not concrete and present. So I, I do quite a lot with, with people to help them understand that the more concrete, the more specific, the more <clears throat> manageable, they can make the first step feel um, the more that they can Visualize the benefit, which seems so abstract, and kind of bring it, pull it into the present as much as possible to see whether they can feel like they're capturing some of the benefit now, perhaps by social you know, socializing and telling people that they're going to do this task. All of these things make much more concrete and real the benefit of getting the thing done uh, while reducing the apparent costs to getting the thing done. And, you know, we're back to cost-benefit analysis that obviously I'm very comfortable with as as an economist. And if you start to help people understand that procrastination is not only, you know, common but actually very natural and that this is the way to tip the balance then they can see not only how to uh, make a dent in some of their hardest um, to-dos, the ones that don't shift at the bottom of their to-do list, but also they can figure out how to better motivate other people, how to break, break things down, make things feel very real and present so that they can help their teammates um, make progress when they're getting stuck.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. In the workplace...
0: You look like you're... I took notes.
1: Are you thinking? Are you thinking about what was to be on your list? you can see that not only I have the book, but I have underlined oh, yes. a lot Actually, of things. That's
0: great. That's great. So, so Eric is showing show me my book with lots of underlining, which is oh my god, that's a nice. And awesome I have thing. also the
1: French version to be sure that I have well understood the first initial English oh, uh, version. So. That's wonderful. Another um, important question, in the workplace, we need, obviously, to make a lot of decisions and to be at our best to make the right decision. And it seems, again, it is very challenging and not so natural. We are under the influence of a lot of unconscious cognitive bias. It was funny to mention that you mentioned the Einstellung effect, for example, and also yeah, is that your favorite? <laughs> One of my favorite, <laughs> and uh, we are also shaped by our, uh, our emotion, uh, others, our energy level, or the context within we make we make decision. Could you again give us some advice and tell us more about how to make the right decision in the workplace?
0: Mm. Well, I think there are two big areas really that I work on. To help people make good decisions and help myself, I mean, let's be clear. I, I, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who gives advice that I don't take myself. I try to, I do try to walk the talk. <laughs> you can, you can check me on that uh, later on. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think obviously, uh, a lot of what we're talking about uh, boils down to um, what economists might once have called rationality, what we ourselves call. Um, You know, simply making good decisions under constraints. (laughs) Um, And we're talking about constraints that involve uh, selective perception and the fact that we don't, uh, we cannot see and hear Um, everything around us very easily, we cannot then evaluate all of those factors as cleanly and clearly as we think we can. Um, So, you know, all of those biases that, you know, that incredibly long list that you can find on Wikipedia, the number of (laughs) lists that you can find, they all boil down to recognising some humility in yourself that you have some blind spots, and that anything you can do to build a little cross check routine into your daily approach to decision making will help and I don't mean small decisions like going to lunch because actually the shortcuts that our automatic system takes you know to help us choose lunch is I mean that's very welcome that's it's great that we don't spend three hours building a spreadsheet on which sandwich we should have but um, but you know I'm talking about the, the the big decisions in in our in our organizations and when I talk about cross-check routines, you know, I'm sort of agnostic across, you know, which bias they're fixing, because we're all subject to a ton of biases at any given time, the cross-check routine um, that works for one particular person isn't going to be the one that works for everybody else. But I mean, things like, always asking yourself, what am I missing? Um, That's the lightest end of the spectrum. And I actually have a CEO that I coach who He's a very smart guy, and he will often get to what he, you know, what feels like a good answer very, very quickly, quicker than anybody else in the room. And one of the things that we've worked on over the last few years is recognizing that however smart and and fast that answer comes, it doesn't mean that it's right. He's not likely to be 100% wrong, but it means that his his rapidity, his, his, um, his his intellectual fluidity means that actually he may be more likely to miss factors that um are worth slowing down and taking, taking in. So he has, he's developed a phrase which is, what am I missing? He'll use that with his teams very, very effectively um, to, to say, you know, what are we missing? What am I missing? But he'll take it on, he will take it on on himself. And then sometimes at the other end of the spectrum, I've taught. Teams, um, I've taught an executive team at a at a bank to do the 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 um pre-mortem, the future r- retrospective. You 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 say, okay, it's it's a year from now. We massively screwed up. What a shame. What a waste of you know our effort. What was it that we missed? And I remember when I was doing it with this team, within <laughs> it was funny. I mean, not funny. I mean it was it was impressive. Within five minutes, they realized that a big um Initiative that they were driving across the organization was going to fail probably because there was no bottom up engagement. It's not you know it's an issue that often arises when leaders have an amazing idea and they think yes let's push it down the organization. So it, they got to really quite a lot of color and depth very quickly on what people further down the organization were going to say, and that was one of the fastest pivots that I have ever seen a team make. So, you know, I think that it's possible to weave these things into your into your daily practice, but they take a bit of effort. And I, you know, you'll find behavioral scientists feel very differently across the spectrum on like, is this possible or is this just so automatic? There's no way we can. And of course, the more that you can socialize it and build it into your team settings and make it a habit, uh, and and be explicit about the reason that you're making it a habit, uh, the better. And then, you know, I mean, there are many other techniques that people can use, like the, you know, the black hat and the, the uh, you know, devil's advocate. And, you know, simply, frankly, I'll tell you the one that I use most often is probably when I'm in a room with a group of people say, OK, if the discussion is skewing positive, positive, then I'll say, let me hear from every single person. If there were if there were one thing that that you think might go wrong with this or that we're missing, what would it be? So you put that conditional on it, so it frees people's ability to kind of come forward to something critical. If people are skewing negative, then to do it the other way around. Before we throw this out completely, can I just hear from everybody what would be one thing you think is worth saving from this? And then by the time you've gone around the room, you're often in a different place. Anyway, but that's 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 the sort of classic sort of blind spot, uh, you know, being aware of the blind spots and developing a little process, um, I do think there's a whole there's a whole other set of topics that I work on in the decision making field that is a bit less present in the behavioral science uh, community, which is about what happens when someone's brain is on the defensive. Because when you have, I mean, there's really you know solid evidence are on this that has built up over decades, the language has changed and adapted over time as um, uh, the imaging has got more and more refined. But we know that when someone is feeling unpleasantly stressed, so meaning something that they can't control, um, not the pleasant kind of stress that, that that can come from a certain sense of anticipation. Um, when it's negative stress, we can see that there's less activity in, in the brain's prefrontal cortex. We can see that as they're powering up a defensive response of varying levels of intensity, there is a reorientation of, of resources within the brain away from more complex reasoning and more thoughtful you know, self-control and, and forward thinking. And so while that's happening... Everything that we already said we know about the brain's blind spots is getting worse. And you're much more likely to get knee-jerk reactions and, uh, you know, the oh-no moments where people sort of look back later and say, oh, no, that was a terrible, why did I say that? So I do find that actually a lot of the work that I do is not just on little team routines to spot blind spots, but it's actually on stress management and on noticing noticing when your brain is on the defensive And recognizing those signals early, recognizing um, that it's that that you are not going to be thinking as clearly as you might. Learning how to pause, sometimes even call that out and say, "You know what? I'm just you know I I realize I'm babbling," or "You know what? I realize I'm frowning," or "Can I just let's just take a step back um, and talk about this? uh, You know, in a, a little bit more depth, if you don't mind." Just anything that gives you that that moment to pause. And to say, what is it that we really want to do here? What's the most important thing, and to refocus, um, so that so that people can think uh, think more clearly again. And so, I think that the cross check routines is good on its on 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 its own. But actually, unless you pair it with uh, an ability to recognize stress, then you're only going to get so far because um, you know it's often at moments of high stress when you need to be, you know, really maximally on your game as a decision maker.
2: Sure. So, Caroline, thinking more globally about behavioral science in the workplace, from your point of view, how could behavioral science learnings be applied by organizations and by the private sector and for what types of questions or challenges do you think it's it's best suited?
0: Well, I i mean, I would say this, wouldn't I, but surely everything. I mean, as long as you have a human being in the frame, you want to understand how that human being is performing, uh, how to motivate them, how to get the best out of them. I mean, I, th- I think the sort of more specific answer is that when we uh, when we think about the history of applied behavioral science in the last decade or so, there was definitely a focus on policy on the policy world which is where i come from so you know obviously that that's uh, that was very dear to my heart and also marketing and consumer insights and you know how do you get in effect how do you get other people to do things whether it's things they should do or things you'd like them to do and i feel like there's a huge area of application that has been more sparsely populated Uh, in the past and I hope you know that will that will shift in the future which is to focus on uh, performance and productivity and well-being and to say well actually there is an enormous amount of research in behavioral neuroscience, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics that can be applied to um, individual and team performance that is not just about um, is not just about you know Influencing other people, uh, and is not just not just about actually the quality of decision making, but going much broader into um, how do you how do you help people perform at their best? Um, and I think you know that's that's where I've seen the biggest shift in the last couple of years. And uh, naturally, I would because of course you know that's the space that I'm in. That's the specific space that I'm in. So I'm sure you get people talk about their own their own. Uh, I mean, we we project our own situations into the answers. Um, that we give you. But, um, I do, I do think that, uh, I do think that that is, that is shifting. And I do feel that it has to, because we're, you know, we're heading into, do you remember the fourth industrial revolution that we talked about before COVID and before, you know, this, it it was, it was really, um, the, the thing that we most worried about was the robots. It's really hard to, hard to imagine that now, but, um you know I hope that we'll build societies that are more cohesive and um uh, healthier in the coming couple of years on the other side we will still have the challenge of uh the next sh- phase of automation um, to uh to, to to deal with and so I think that the more that leaders can understand how to bring uh the the human strengths out of their human workforce, um, the more likely human beings are to have a job to do that sits alongside the robots. Because if if AI is automating everything that is repeatable and predictable, what's left to us is areas that are rich in empathy and inspiration and wisdom and creativity. And there's research on what it takes to encourage all of those. And very little of that is making its way into the management curriculum at the moment. So that's that's where I see the biggest opportunity going forward.
2: Very interesting. So to your point about either influencing others or improving employee well-being, do you have in mind some companies that you think are really great at applying behavioral science
0: to do either of those things? Well, <laughs> actually, you know what? I think that... Um, you never companies and organizations are like marriages. You never know what it's like being inside them until you're inside them. so i I'm always very careful about picking out you know specific specific companies. but I tell you what I will say is that I have seen chief learning officers in the last uh, last couple of years really start to get interested in that idea of equipping their managers with more basic behavioural science. I do think that that has shifted. And I've been doing some work um, recently with, I don't know whether I can mention their name, they're, they're you know, a very, an incredibly large consumer goods company that is global. <laughs> um, I actually worked with them for the first time about 20 years ago when I was helping them think about uh, leadership development for the first time. And, and they are so thoughtful In all the things that we've talked about, you know, the importance of um, the importance of equipping people with an understanding of what happens to someone's brain under threat. Uh, an understanding of therefore what you might do to uh, to create a positive working environment that allows people to do their best quality thinking while raising challenges and you know and saying hang on we haven't thought of this or that um, and so they they've been really really striking in and I mean yes they have they have got my book it's true but you know they they've been really striking in thinking about how to use behavioural science and weave it in in plain language into all of the fabric of their their HR and their leadership development programmes. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see um, more broadly, you know, because it doesn't have to be complex to, to make a difference. Um, and I've, you know, I've worked on Rikers Island and talked about the way that the brain responds under stress and talked about what that means for how people handle conflict. Um, I've worked with prison officers there, and you know many of the people that I was working with did not have anything more than a high school education, and they were more than capable of uh, of, of playing back to me, you know, what we'd been discussing in terms of quite complex neuroscientific ideas. So I do think that. You know, I've seen these ideas be quite transformative in in a really very large range of set, large range of settings. That gives me confidence that this is stuff that everybody could learn.
2: Absolutely. So, to that point about infusing behavioral science thinking and learning within organizations more broadly, what advice would you give to businesses
0: and their practitioners to do that? Hmm. Well, I would. Um, I would start with a few simple ideas um that are not super complicated so i would start with the idea that uh, your deliberate system needs to uh needs to have the right conditions in order to perform well uh, so that that fits very neatly into uh, discussions that people are having about performance And I would teach them about what happens to the brain in defensive mode and then um, use that as a jumping off point to to then talk about, well, what does that mean for how you might run your teams? And it's very easy for me to come and say, oh, you should do that and you should do this and you should do that. But I think actually one of the things we know from our own research uh, in this field is that people feel much more attached to things that they worked out for themselves. So, you know, if you remember the classic um, Ellen Langer lottery ticket uh, study where you know, people are much more attached to a lottery ticket that they've written a number on themselves. Um, I've found time and again that the more you can lay out some principles and then say, well, what do you think this might mean for how you would run your team, how you would you know, run your organisation, there's more ownership. And, of course, I can be there as a coach. Uh, you know, A behavioural scientist can be there as a kind of advisor but once you've got the basic ideas in place, people can kind of quite readily see that this how this might translate into real life changes in in their teams and their organizations um, And I do think you know just keeping people focused on the benefits that this is not just about um, this is not just about being nice this is about creating an, an organization a, an environment a culture where everybody wants to work and everybody wants to do their best work.
1: I would like to ask you something which is when key topic for me. If you had to convince a leader to apply behavioral science principle in his or her organization, what would be the key benefits that you would highlight? Uh,
0: well, I th- I think this goes back to what I was just saying, but I mean, to, to add to that, what I would, a little trick that I have used where I'm trying to get people to um, perhaps think about um, behavioral issues in a way that they haven't before is I, I get everybody knows the difference between a good day and a bad day on in themselves. Um, And if you get them to say, okay, well, how productive and how brilliant are you on your best day? And then on your worst day, well, what, I mean, obviously, we're just putting numbers on this, but it's still a useful thought exercise to say what percentage brilliant or productive are you on your worst day? And then to say, okay, well, we know that there are predictable factors that will increase your level of brilliance and productivity. And by the way, also your sense of well-being. <laughs> um, now, if you, could, if you could make use of that research to have a few of your bad days become good days, you can actually quantify the benefits. So you get them to work out what they feel the difference is between them at their best and them at their worst, and then just apply a little, you know, well, what if 10% of your days were them? you know, better. Um, so that often works quite well with with people who are quite quantitatively minded, who might be disinclined to think about soft stuff, either for themselves or for their colleagues.
1: Okay, thanks. Um, another, I think, different but important question. Uh, we are at the beginning of June 2020. There is obviously one Huge issue on everyone's minds, which is the coronavirus. There is a new challenge with working from home or managing a team which is working from home. What is your perspective regarding the objective of having a good day working at home as an employee and as a manager?
0: Well, I think that uh, I think a lot about the fundamental attribution error um, which I'm sure everybody listening will know. Uh, but, uh, uh, just to, to recap, that's where, you know, if we don't perform at our best, we, we know that that's attributable to bad circumstances. We probably didn't sleep perfectly, or, you know, we've maybe just had a bad, uh, a, a bad family situation arise in the morning or whatever. Uh, but if, uh, but if you, Eric, Suzanne, uh, turn up and you're not firing on all cylinders, then I attribute that to you being terrible people. I, I might not say that out loud, but there's a little bit of me that just assumes that, oh, they're just not up to it. They're just not. So that's the, the attribution error that we attribute bad behavior to bad character instead of bad circumstances. And I think right now, um, with the, the situation that we've been going through in the last couple of months, I, th- I think I see people being a little kinder, a little bit more Generous to each other and understanding the way that people's personal lives and personal constraints might be acting on their ability to perform professionally. And Uh, You know, we've got in a way we've got more information because we can see people in their home settings. In a way, we've got less information because we're not really physically with them. And so we don't you know, we don't necessarily get some of the information that you would get from being uh, physically present. But you get quite a lot of information. And so I think, you know, one of the themes that has been coming up a lot more for me in a good way has been compassion and to say, Okay, so if this person isn't quite doing what I would hope, uh, to be generous in assuming that they are a good person and that there may be some circumstances beyond their control, to be curious about what might be putting their brain on the defensive, what might be threatening their sense of self worth or their sense of social standing. You know, is it it that they feel out of their depth and so there's a threat to competence? Is it that they feel they've got no control over the situation that they're in right now? So they're challenged on the dimension of autonomy. I mean, frankly, you know, for many of us right now, we're dealing with daily challenges to our feelings of autonomy and competence, which put us slightly on the defensive almost all the time. And so I think just, you know, getting curious about that and then being appreciative, recognizing that. One of the surest ways that we can take someone off the defensive is to be genuinely appreciative of something, some aspect of what they've done or who they are. And people sometimes say, well, you can't just make stuff up, you know. And then I say, well, you you don't always have to make, you don't have to make stuff up in order to say something nice to someone. (laughs) There's usually something you can say to appreciate, you know, someone's effort, someone's willingness to 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 try if even if you don't love the outcome you can say I really appreciate the depth in which you've gone to thinking about this or um and I think you know that that obviously um is something which is good at all times but when we are Losing a part of ourselves when we're working from home right now, for many of us, it feels that we're a little bit cut off and that we're a little uh, on the on the back foot the whole time. Um, I think that that is, you know, that, that is something that's that's been more important in the last couple of months. And I'm hoping that that will continue to be very present, that feeling of active compassion.
2: So speaking of the future, we have one last question of looking a little bit further ahead. So the behavioral science publication recently asked the behavioral science community to write articles about what they think the future of BE is going to look like. What is
0: your vision for the future of our field? I think I'd like to see much more integration between neuroscience psychology and economics. And I, I, I particularly mean more integration of the neural correlates of the behavior that uh is being described in you know other in disciplines other other areas in, in behavioral science and so you know when i think about some of the most uh interesting uh breakthroughs in the work say on altruism like by Molly Crockett. uh, She's a professor at Yale. She's definitely a neuroscientist, but she's in in, in Yale's um, psychology department. And I've been at an event with her where she talked about behavioral economics. And she, to me, is the embodiment of someone who is spanning these three domains just so beautifully. And we get so much richness from understanding what is going on in in the brain while we're making uh, this decision or we're feeling this way about a you know um, some choices that we're needing to make, and in particular, I think you know yes, I think we have uh, integrated thinking about system one and system two we've done less to think about the brain under stress and under pressure, and what that what that implies, and I do feel. That's as as I mentioned earlier on. that we get to such uh, we get to greater degree of clarity if we if we start to integrate thinking about the brain's reward system and survival circuits to use um, Joseph LeDoux's term. If we if we integrate that thinking, we start to notice that the list of the list of two hundred biases starts to come down to okay. Actually, we are seeking to maximize. Uh, what's rewarding, our sense of what's rewarding is way broader than what economists used to think, but it's going back a little bit to what we might have said the worldly philosophers said, which is what economics used to be known as, um, and to to say actually there's this huge range of things that we see as fundamentally rewarding that we're seeking to maximise, and there's a range of things that we see as threatening, which we're seeking to minimise. And then I think that would give us a much cleaner sense of... Um, sense of you know where where our gaps and our, our challenges are as human beings and we'd be navigating these long lists of biases perhaps a little less wonderful well
2: thank you caroline so much again for joining us today it's an absolutely fascinating conversation is there anything you want to leave our listeners with um, perhaps where they can find out more about you and all of your amazing work
0: oh thank you well there is a website howtohaveagoodday.com And uh, there's a lot of resources there. You can search on different topics from uh, priorities and productivity through thinking and relationships and uh, influence and resilience and energy. So that's probably a nice place to go. Um, And uh, they can always click on my picture and and go to the website to learn more about me if if they don't feel like they've (laughs) already heard far too much from me today.
2: Perfect. Thank you, Caroline, again so very much
1: thanks a lot not a new book in your mind
0: maybe ah but this one took 15 years so you know um i'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not uh, no i'm but i'm you know i'm writing i'm still writing and i'm still you know still have my relationship with Harvard business review so um so that's that's where i'll probably focus most of my writing still in the next couple of years but yeah i'm very interested in uncertainty very interested in uncertainty and um how we respond to uncertainty and how we manage that and i find that that's a topic that i t- you know i cover quite a bit with my clients and i i don't really know whether there's anything new to be said about it so you know i don't want to don't want to do this unless it feels like there's something that i can genuinely add but that's certainly an area that i think i i might want to spend a bit more time on especially you know i think uh you know i'm going through a period of um enormous uh, personal uncertainty right now so i think it's you know i i think it's uh, really on my mind a lot on how we how we stay centered and how we can make the most of these sort of very very turbulent times
1: okay thanks a lot again it was an amazing conversation i was sure of it but now <laughs> we know it so uh, thanks a lot for this uh, conversation again and impassioned to read your next book on uncertainty (laughs) and not in 15 years please so thanks a lot thank you thank you both
0: be good a podcast by the bva nudge unit